Welcome to What a Word is Worth, a space for creative minds to speak about viable ways to heal the world through writing and other inventive mediums. I am your host, Marianela Medrano, founder of Palabra Training Center, where we give words as medicine. And my guest today is David Ebenbach, writer, teacher, and poet, and many other things, author of How to Mars, a title I really like, and his latest poetry collection, What's Left to Us by Evening, another wonderful title. Welcome, David. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Yes, I'm I remember your, um, our reading together a few years ago, and I was mm -hmm. so taken by your poetry and now your latest book. Well, we're going to talk more about it, but thank you for being who you are. Uh, um, you too. It's so, really yes. So, David, your website tell us, um, tells us that you are chronically preoccupied with the human condition. <laughs> My question is, has writing alleviated that preoccupation? And do you subscribe to the idea of writing being a healing bomb? Hmm. Uh, to start with the latter part, I certainly do. Uh, writing has helped me think through many confusing and complicated things in my life and in the world. Um, I don't know that I'll ever get to the end of the preoccupation because there's so much complexity, so much mystery, so many strange things about being alive and being in society and among people. So um, I think if I wasn't writing, I would be buried under all of that. But with yeah. writing, I at least can keep moving and having discoveries and growing and perhaps gaining a little bit of wisdom. Um, but there are always more questions, always yeah. more things I don't understand and don't know. Right. So that's why we have to keep writing and reading. And, yeah. and speaking of that, um, when you look back, um, how did you come to um, seeing writing as, as that place of refuge, would you say? And, and uh, how did you come to that? It took a while. I mean, I think when mm. I was, I've been writing since I was a little kid. Mm. But when I was a little kid, it was mostly sort of adventures. And, um, you know, I was writing stories that had twisty plots and mm. things where there are big surprises at the end. And um, maybe sometimes I was writing about political issues, um, but it was, you know, it was sort of removed from it to an extent. Mm. Um, but poetry, the more I worked on that in high school, uh, in particular, for it, it took a while for fiction to also take on this quality, but poetry in high school became a place where, I mean, you know, the things about breakups and <laughs> teenage confusion and love yeah. and all that. Um, it's such a natural environment to be exploring those things. And then in college, fiction started to be able to do that for me too. Mm. Uh, you know, I had the realization then that you actually can write a story that's not factually true, but that is emotionally true. Mm. And that therefore you can learn a lot about uh, what it means to be alive and what the challenges are and how to deal with them. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was sort of gradual and step by step. Mm. Now, and it's not only about healing for me, but now almost all of it has some element of 
coming to grips with the world. Yeah, and transforming, right, the things that... Um, have you, I don't know if you have thought about these, but is there a difference um, between um, the genres and your ability to um, grasp more or see more? Is there, I know that you just said that you discover, you know, that not only poetry will get you there, but is there one that particularly is more um, revealing than, mm. than others? I would say uh, not really. No. Um, the biggest division between genres, I feel, is between mm -hmm. very long stuff and shorter mm. stuff. Mm. So, for example, novels feel really different to me than short stories and poems. Mm -hmm. um, and short stories and poems feel more similar to me. It feels like one thing that I can do with the short stories and poems that is sort of helpful is to admit that I don't know things and to just explore a little bit, face whatever it is, and, and not always come out with an answer, but come out having looked right at it, having mm -hmm. looked in the darkness, having turned on the flashlight for mm -hmm. a few moments. With a novel, it feels like you have to you have to get somewhere. You know, there has to be some place of, of real discovery. Um, and that's more challenging. Mm -hmm. I had this novel, Miss Portland, that's about a woman. Uh, I never say bipolar disorder in the book, but that's what's going on for her. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can't just leave her at the end of the book in basically the same place that she was mm -hmm. when we started. It's been too long of a journey at that point. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I won't, you know, do any spoilers, mm -hmm. uh, but I do have to get somewhere there. And with stories mm -hmm. and poems, I feel a little bit more like I can just, sometimes I have conclusions and sometimes I just try to articulate the question well. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't write novels. I mean, I have tried. I, I think everyone tries. <laughs> <laughs> I have given it a try, but but I, I get what you're saying, yes. I feel um, that way too, even about my novels that are finished. That, that mm. I tried. <laughs> That's a good attitude, though. Uh, so in, in the artist Torah, you, which you describe as a guide to the creative process, you make the promise that creativity is a natural and important part of the human spirit. Mm -hmm. You take it further, a bright spark that week after week, this book will brighten, you said. Mm -hmm. If a skeptic is listening to us right now, what will you say to convince the person that creativity is a fiber of the human spirit? Mm. It, it probably would take a lot. Some people are quite skeptical. I teach this course on creativity for graduate students every spring. And most of them, most of them come in saying that they are not creative people. But what brought them in there? You know, there's some, they want to be proven wrong, I think. And as we go through the semester, we, we look at all sorts of things, um, theories and ideas, but I also lead them through trying it out, you know, and doing different things. We do exercises in class. They do exercises between class. They're just trying on creativity. And of course they discover that they have a place in it. There's this, um, this, this author called Edward Clapp, who has mm. this book, Participatory Creativity, that I love. 
And he says that we always ask the wrong question. Mm. The wrong question is, who is creative? And his notion is that it would be better to ask, what role can each person play in the creative process? So he gives these examples of students working together on a project. And one of them is really great at coming up with ideas that are off the wall and interesting. Mm. Someone else is good at bringing them down to earth and seeing how they could be applied. Mm. Someone else is really good at communicating back and forth, make sure everybody's in the same place. Mm. Someone else keeps everybody's spirits up so that they have the energy to be creative. And all of them are part of the, the story of that creative thing coming into the, into the light. So his idea really is that we shouldn't be looking at the biographies of creative people, but the biographies of creative ideas and who are the many people who contributed to those ideas along the way. So that's a thing I believe very much. And I think, you know, you mentioned the artist's Torah. Um, the, the Jewish tradition, in my view, believes that as well. You know, there's this whole story of the Garden of Eden where we eat of the fruit of the tree mm -hmm. of knowledge mm -hmm. and um, and all of a sudden, people are able to make things and create things, people, um, houses, uh, you know, agriculture, all of these things bursting out of what we know about the world. Yeah. And so I think we, you know, we, I talked about shining the flashlight. Mm -hmm. If we really know ourselves and the world, there's no doubt in my mind we can participate in the co-construction of the world. You know, what, I, what I'm thinking um, or hearing here is the idea, fostering the idea of belonging, mm. right? Like if, oh, if when, when we belong, then anything is possible. So in the classroom, you're saying, um, I mean, in, because you, you teach, one way to get people to that is, is the sense of belonging and, and having a voice mm -hmm. um, into the experience. So, so important. A belonging yeah. is important for so many things. Yeah. Uh, for staying in school, for achieving in school, for being yeah. creative, for taking risks. Yeah. Um, and of course, the thing that's really terrible is when we ask questions like, who is creative? Mm -hmm. It's not random who gets left out of that, you know? That's important, like, right. You know, Can you say becomes, more about that? Who, yeah, <laughs> yeah you know, who gets that? Up of being it. People like me, white men who end up being told, well, you're the creative one, maybe white women sometimes. Yeah. Um, but it, it's all these people, you know, if you come from a public school that's underfunded, um, then everybody in the room might be getting told, hey, you're not that creative, just mm -hmm. try and get a job and you're done. Um, and so we systematically are leaving out people of color, mm -hmm. people from lower sexual socioeconomic status, mm -hmm. um, people where there might be language barriers, mm -hmm. communication. Um, so it, it's bad enough that we're leaving people out. It's even worse that we're leaving people out systematically. Absolutely. I'm so glad, David, that you're speaking about this because, you know, in these days, um, there is so much preoccupation for teaching and bringing diversity and equity and inclusivity mm -hmm. into classrooms, into companies, into you name it. Um, and yet, you know, what the majority of people are doing is creating a problem and not giving the solution. Because I think, um, you know, with Ruth King, I will say, which is someone who has um, written quite a bit about this, 
is that again, you know, I mentioned belonging. It's like the thing is how do we teach belonging? How do we create an atmosphere of belonging? And it's so important, right, that you as a white man, you're you're having this perspective, you're you're holding um, the space for your students. Mm. Um, this is so so. Well, it's crucially yeah. important. Mm -hmm. I should say my my job is partly teaching in the classroom, undergraduates and graduates, but it's partly working at the teaching center at Georgetown, mm -hmm. um, where we work with faculty and graduate students on their teaching. And um, one of the teams I'm most active on is our inclusive pedagogy team. Mm -hmm. We see, I mean, Georgetown is a, is a, a school where students go on to do amazing things. Mm -hmm. When mm -hmm. you ask students about their experience, there's mm -hmm. a lot of folks who feel like they don't belong. In fact, I used to say, um, you know, I would have students come to my office and say, I'm the only one here who feels this way. And I would say to them, well, you're the 20th person who's told me that today. So I, I don't think that's true. Mm -hmm. um, so there's this kind of general feeling of not belonging. But again, it's not random either. Mm -hmm. It's systematic. Yeah, right. um, so you see, uh, in particular, you know, you see Black students at Georgetown feeling like, I don't know if mm -hmm. this place wants me here. Mm -hmm. um, these first generation students, mm -hmm. um, students with disabilities, et cetera. So, um, we need to be paying attention to this because the schools are not doing what we think they're doing. Yeah, yeah. Sort of look at it as anytime a student pulls away or underperforms or doesn't get involved, well, they're making an individual choice. You know, mm -hmm. they're, you know, not quite ready. But mm -hmm. we're not looking at the whole picture and how mm -hmm. folks are systematically been being made to feel like they don't really belong there. It's not right, right. So we have to create classrooms where people yeah. see that their the knowledge they bring is valuable. Mm -hmm. You know the contribute the questions they ask, the contributions they make. Mm -hmm. um, but we wouldn't be a good. Uh, we we would be uh, broken and not whole without mm -hmm. each one of those students. Exactly, but it's the it's the the myth of separation, right? That that is is the biggest um, mm -hmm. obstacle. But then, how do you? Um, you know, debunk it like in in a in a world that is so Eurocentric. Um, you know, so it's can I say white centric? <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I think you have to prove it. I, I do think we have to talk about it, but I think we also have to prove it to the students. Yeah. So mm -hmm. we talk about it. You know, I talk about it on my syllabus. I talk about mm -hmm. it in class, and uh, and the the value of belonging and the importance that each of us take on um, this community. It's one of my learning goals that you will become a member of a productive, creative community while you're in this class. But then we have to prove it by every time somebody says something that's really useful, we point mm -hmm. it out. We show mm -hmm. how that contributed to the conversation. You know, we you know you have to leave little notes on their writing assignments saying, gosh, I hope you'll read something in class because this mm. is really exciting. Mm -hmm. um, we have mm -hmm. to draw people in. Right. We have to refer to people by name and say, oh, remember earlier right. when so-and-so said this? Um, that's really relevant here. Um, and then we prove it by doing all yeah. that. We prove that everybody's valued. It's by seeing, by, by helping people feel seen yeah. by you. And also, I, I like what you were saying 
it's not a one side thing. This is everyone's job everyone's to debunk job. this myth of separation is everyone's job. Everyone's so it's job. not white people or it's not BIPOC people. It's like everyone has to contribute. And yet the people who are in the position, I mean, whether you like it or not, as a teacher, you are in a position of power and it's up to you what you want to do with it. If you use it in the in the form that you were talking about, um, then yes, you are creating the uh, the belonging there. Um, but if you forget that, you know, something as simple as names, yep. <laughs> your history. Yeah, mm-hmm. that is beautiful. Yeah. I want to be your student. <laughs> I want to be your student. I am your student. You know, and I think there's so many ways we can get it wrong. Mm. We don't ask how to pronounce students' names and we pronounce them wrong all semester mm-hmm. long. Mm-hmm. We mix one student up for another. That's, you know, a brutal experience yeah. that can happen. We yeah. talk through a student instead of listening to them all the way through. Maybe we use academic jargon that not everybody in the room is equally familiar with. Like my mother didn't go to college. I didn't go to college with pre-existing knowledge of everything about academia. Mm -hmm. Um, So if a teacher talked at a level that just assumes that, then I would have been Mm. lost, you know? So we have to remember that too, the hidden curriculum, all the things that of course we all know about. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Let's go to your poem, Why Men? Mm. Um, there is a line that that kind of stopped me there. You said, we will fill the rooms with shadow. Mm. And you describe that shadow. Is it shadow as an analytical psychology, the uh, repressed shadow archetype? Or what is the shadow that you are filling the room with and why? Yeah, I, I should say... I have some training in psychology, but it was in social psychology. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my young is not particularly sharp. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm, I'm usually not doing something, well, not knowingly, mm-hmm. something, mm-hmm. you know, in that kind of analysis mode. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think of shadow as, I mean, there's something somber about it. Mm-hmm. There's something that feels like, you know, the, the day is declining, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. lots of places to hide, which is maybe a good thing in some ways, but in other ways, not ideal. And, um, you know, the whole poem is a sort of spoof of X-Men, you mm. know, this sort of superhero academy, mm-hmm. these superheroes. And this is an academy for people who are not sure what their purpose is. And mm-hmm. so they're why men. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, their, their rooms are fitted with extra walls you know, they sit in the cafeteria in silence. There's no front lawn. Mm. Everything is a back lawn. Mm. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm trying in that. You're playing with that. Yeah. And to talk about isolation and mm-hmm. um, disconnection. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the shadow points to that. Yeah. Uh, that disconnect that. Yeah. When um I was asking this um, to someone the other day in another interview. Um, I'm always curious, when you look at that poem, um, do you feel that the poem did 
what you wanted the poem to do for you? Mm. It's a tough question because I think the answer inevitably has to be yes and has to be no. Mm. Uh, mm. And what I mean by that is- it For what you're saying, you were saying before, right? Like it's never done, the questions are- Right, yeah. right, there's always more questions. Mm. And you know, it wouldn't be in the book if I didn't feel like when I read it, I yeah. was having the experience that I wanted to have. Mm -hmm. And if I hadn't gotten feedback on it that felt like at least some people are having that experience. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, now it's out in the world. Well, mm -hmm. it's not quite. On October 6th, it's out in the world. Yeah. And um, at that point, it doesn't belong to me anymore. Mm -hmm. And it's going to do all sorts of things. And I don't have total control over that. I, I have very little control over that. It's true. So I try to arrange the words in a way that it forms a kind of script for an experience mm -hmm. that I hope the reader will have. Mm -hmm. Inevitably, people are going to come away with different things. Mm -hmm. And if they're approaching the book with, you know, we're reading um, in my, my class, Jewish Literature of the Global South, that I'm teaching this semester, we were mm -hmm. just reading Edmund Jabez, who is a, an Egyptian French Jewish poet. Mm -hmm. And he, he talks about his book, which is called The Book of Questions. Mm -hmm. and that is wonderful um and he says that uh, as long as a person comes to his book with earnestness mm -hmm. the questions they have are the right ones mm -hmm. so I, I i have to agree with him well and i must say as someone who read your book um that every poem i can say is like it's a punch but a good one it's mm -hmm. a at least that was what it did to me. It was like it woke me up. Oh, Every okay. single poem left me like really, really awake oh, and curious. Okay. Um, very powerful. So thank you. Um, one thing that seems to me to, um, you know, nostalgia seems mm. to be a frequent flyer <laughs> in your poems. Mm -hmm. What exactly are you nostalgic for? Yeah, that's such a superb question. You know, I used to joke that um, my emotional life was 45% missing things that were already gone, 45% missing things that aren't even gone yet, and 10% road rage. And that was the whole, you know, package. Uh, it's, it's not quite that simple. But I think sometimes when I feel nostalgia, which I often do, I don't actually want to be back where I was. You mm -hmm. know, sometimes a song will come on from my childhood or my mm -hmm. teenagers, and I'll feel this intense longing. And if someone were to then in that moment soberly say to me, oh, should we go ahead and just return you to that time? I would, in horror, I would recoil. You know, I'm mm -hmm. so happy with where I am in my life. And I have no need to be back in all of that kind of chaos and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uncertainty. But I still long for it. I don't want yeah. it, but I long for it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I don't know how to explain that. Mm. Mm. Um, maybe it's any time, I'm speculating now, but maybe it's any time I just feel a gap between who I am and who else I have been. That well, is that the... Yeah, the pool of the familiar, right? Like, yeah. Like one. yeah, yeah. 
So I get, I, you know, and I, I get drawn back to that. Mm -hmm. My city of Philadelphia is the site of a lot of that for me, mm -hmm. a lot of a, a sort of unhealthy attachment to Philadelphia mm -hmm. think, mm -hmm. um, and to my childhood. So you grew up in Philadelphia. So let's stay with that theme of, you know, nostalgia, um, you know, the pool of the familiar, but not necessarily wanting to go back. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a way to touch base, like to go back home for some, from, for what? Mm. <clears throat> I guess that's it, isn't it? That mm. it partly is about being able to go home, but still be me. Yeah. Um, so that's part of it. Is I can relate to that. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can bring it into the present. And of uh -huh. course, in doing that, you probably change it a little bit and yeah, yeah. maybe even warp it a little bit, which is a, you know, strange, but mm -hmm. real. Um, so there's that. Mm -hmm. um, but also, I think it's a way for me to sit in the feeling, mm -hmm. longing, and to just survive it. You know, longing mm -hmm. doesn't have to be a destructive thing. Mm -hmm. And a poem gives me the space to occupy that longing mm -hmm. safely. Um, I mean, not perfectly safely, you know, it, hopefully there are risks in writing a poem, but I hope. <laughs> right. But I won't get physically injured, you know, or, you know, I won't probably go into a, a trauma state, hopefully. Mm -hmm. um, and I like just sitting again with that flashlight in the dark and seeing, you know, it's okay to be in here. This is fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like that. And, you know, when I, when I teach um, either mindful writing or embodied writing, I'm always asking people um, to, you know, do whatever they can to write from the body, right? Mm -hmm. So when, is that what you're saying? Like you, the sitting in the feeling, mm -hmm. um, how will you explain that? Uh, again, to that skeptic who's listening to us, um, the how do you see it in the feeling as a poet? Mm. Well, first of all, you you have to sort of keep track of your discomfort. Mm. If you're writing and you're feeling, and it's very physical, right? You know, mm. your, your chest feels tight, mm -hmm. and your fingers get twitchy, and mm. um, maybe there's a heat on the back of your neck or, you know, all the sorts of normal things, mm. heart rate goes up. If you're feeling that, then you're somewhere powerful. Mm -hmm. And I often try to chase that, mm -hmm. try to go where that is, mm -hmm. um, because I think the most powerful things are there. Um, you know, there's the, this isn't poetry, but um, in my fiction classes in the past, mm -hmm. I've sometimes given my students an assignment. Uh, I only do it once we know each other very well. Mm -hmm. I always give them lots of other options. They don't have to do this. Mm -hmm. But it's write the story you're not allowed to write. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean some secret that they're revealing. It's a fictional story, um, but something where they would be feeling those feelings as they were writing it. You know, maybe they're writing uh, sympathetically from the point of view of somebody that they really are upset about or, or nervous about, or maybe they're, they have a character who does things that this person would find embarrassing. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and it's not always sex and violence. It, for some people, it's earnestness, truth you know, right, approaching right. life without sarcasm. Mm -hmm. um, so I tell them all this and I say at the end of giving them the instructions, if you are starting to feel terrified, you've already started to write this story. 
you know, and even though I give them other options and I tell them, well, you can just write this and never hand it in to me and just keep it for yourself. Uh, almost everybody chooses to do it. Mm. And, and then of course they only show it to me, but there's a workshop portion of the class and many of them end up submitting that story mm. to the workshop because it's mm. the most powerful thing they've written all semester mm-hmm. and they know it, right? Yeah. And so yeah. what I say to them is, okay, before that was a dark part of your interior. Mm. You weren't looking in there, it was too scary. Who knew what would happen if you went in there? Well, now mm. you have been in there you're still here, mm. right? We're all here. And uh, in fact, you've made something beautiful and powerful that will be meaningful to other people. How cool is that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's creativity as the flashlight <laughs> into that. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. Mm. Um, in, in, um, in your poem, The Archaeologist Story, mm. is that the story of humanity? Um, Interesting. Is that where we're aiming? Or did I totally miss? Well, no, I mean, it's my perception, right? Yeah, you're, I was going to say, did I misread it? No, that's how I read it. <laughs> yeah, no, you're correct. Um, uh, whatever I think, you're correct. Uh, so you have these two tribes, right? And one of them lives upstream and they worship the mountain and the river and everything's beautiful and full of life. And they They leave their dead to the river and then the people down the river worship the river, but for very different reasons. It's a source of terror. It's terrifying. And I think it is one of the stories of what it means to be human. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, certainly if you think about, you know, you hesitate to use the word parasitic, but Mm. there is a way in which um, very wealthy cultures Mm -hmm. are parasitic Mm -hmm. on cultures that make their shirts, you know, grow their food. Mm -hmm. Um, There's that fantastic movie, Parasite, that Korean movie, where you think the parasite is is this person who's, these people are sort of con artists who have very little money, but you realize the people that they're trying to get money from may be the parasites. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So there is that way. And, Mm -hmm. you know, does does our happiness have a cost for somebody else? At the same time, I, I hope the poem suggests that um, even people who are suffering um, have joy in their lives and have meaning in their lives. Mm-hmm. They just have a different world that comes to them down the river. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it may not be just, and we should probably change it, but that doesn't mean that their lives are meaningless right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're mm-hmm. constructing narratives around um, all the things that are happening, and those are valuable and important too. Mm-hmm. And and I think you you achieved that, and that's why when I was reading it, I was like, oh my god, this is the history of humanity from different angles. Mm-hmm. Is what I thought. Um, I love that. Yeah, um, it's it's really um, a very powerful uh, poem. So I hope our audience is going to rush and get your book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, I want to jump to um, the war story. Mm, sure. Um, my perception, and maybe you can read some parts of it, but we'll see. My perception of war story is that it goes beyond trauma and into the impact of historical memory 
if it is or the impact that forgetting historical memory, um, you know, the impact that it will have. Mm -hmm. So that trauma, you know, the, the, the trauma that could come from forgetting uh, our historical memory, mm -hmm. it's one that we cannot overcome. Mm -hmm. Is that what you were aiming at with the poem? Gosh, I love this because that's a thing that I never have thought about, but I, uh, I think it is in the poem. You know, I mean, on its face, um, I've had, you know, a number of, of students who are veterans. Mm -hmm. and so on its face, this poem, there's an individual there who, you know, you go to war, lots of terrible things happen and you come back and people say, what happened over there? And so you tell the story. Yeah. Um, and, and there's something healing about that, telling your mm -hmm. story. Uh, but you tell it enough times and it starts to just be a story. Mm -hmm. And then you're really losing something. Yeah. Um, and that is analogous to what happens in the mm -hmm. larger culture. Um, you know, the stories that we tell about, um, you know, the various wars in Iraq or Vietnam or uh, the civil rights movement or all sorts of things that have happened. Or the Holocaust. Or the Holocaust. <laughs> Yeah. Right. And we tell these stories because we want, we're trying to do the right thing mm -hmm. to heal, but also to keep this in front of everybody's eyes. Mm -hmm. but it can become just a kind of story. Yeah. And um, oh, Claude Lanzmann, I think, was a, a cinematographer who was very upset about the movie Schindler's List mm -hmm. <clears throat> because he thought that people would go to it and they, you know, they would cry and they would sort of have a catharsis, you know, they're weeping um, and things in a way in the movie sort of turn out okay because you're this heroic figure who's saving folks. And at the end of the movie, you see all of the actual survivors that he saved, mm -hmm. leaving flowers on his mm -hmm. grave. And um, undoubtedly that was heroism and, mm -hmm. and enormously important. But his feeling was that you then leave the theater and you're done with the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. so, well, that's over. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that that guy took care of that. Um, and I'm glad I got a good cry in and now I don't have to feel sad or worry about anything. Mm -hmm. So there is a danger there. I think it's, I don't know right. you it, but there is a danger there. Absolutely. And you know what I'm thinking in, in working with trauma, <clears throat> it's not unusual and the most, especially people with complex trauma, with layers and layers of trauma, that they will come, the way that you know how impacted the person is, is because they will come and dump, mm -hmm. you know, a lot, but it's, there is a dissociative kind of air to the telling. Mm -hmm. um, like so, connection. yeah, there is, there is a disconnect, which is, a, by the way, is, is one way, it's one part of us that's intended to protect us. So I'm not poo-pooing yeah. it. It's, yeah. it's like, you know, those people are doing that. There is a part of the personality that is protecting mm -hmm. by disconnecting from, from the horror, right? Mm -hmm. At the same time, you know, I go back, if we forget, our historical memory, we are then doomed. And it's it's a trauma that we cannot 
overcome. And that's, yeah. I so agree. And, and that's part of what I'm trying to do in this whole collection. Mm, I um, think so. You know, that um, to my mind, you know, mm -hmm. so these poems were written over 11 years, actually. Mm. Um, and so I, I pulled them together because I think they were doing something coherent together, which is I look at the world, especially these mm -hmm. days, always, and I see that on the one hand, you've got school shootings, you've got political hatred and violence, you've got a pandemic, you know, you've got um, all sorts of the climate change, all sorts of things going wrong. You also look and you see beautiful communities supporting each other, mm -hmm. you see incredible natural beauty in the world. Mm -hmm you see renewal, yeah. um, the possibility of growth. And my feeling is they are both true and that the only way we can live a fully authentic life and, and really maybe a, a life that contributes is if we can hold both of those things. Yeah. You so, know, I think if we just hold the horrors, yeah. it will probably paralyze us. Exactly. And if we just hold the beauty, um, we'll be complacent. Yeah. So it's, it's both of them that is the whole world. Cannot agree more. I mean, the idea of holding perspective is not just looking at one side, is what you're saying, is, is holding the suchness, right, yeah. of life, like it's, right. it's a, a whole thing. Right. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so one poem that I want you to read and mm. I want us to talk about um, is the Ode to Anger, where you, you pay homage to a very unpopular part of our personality, um, a shadow part, actually, mm -hmm. uh, uh, what we call, you know, a suppressed uh, part. We don't, we don't say proudly, right? It's, we try to suppress the anger, but then it just comes. Mm -hmm. um, so, can can you read it please <laughs> absolutely yeah it's called ode to anger and here it is ode to anger you are an old friend if not a very good one you hang out at my ear recommending blood or your hands extra hands on the wheel steering me through the guardrail or into the wall and then throwing the gear so I can back up and hit it again. Not that you're outside of me, you're more like a tide in the brain carrying bad ideas, each one a sealed bottle to smash. Then you're the friend who bolts, me alone with a hand of shards. At night when things could be quiet, you return to hammer together a stage on my pillow and rehearse revenge tragedies where you get all the lines. That is so powerful. As I was saying to you before, I, I must borrow that poem <laughs> to, to help people voice, uh, you know, parts of the personality that we consider unpopular, but that are there to protect us. And this is, this is actually a good example. So as you read the poem, though, what um, are there revelations emerging for you um, about um, the not just anger, but about what is what is there um, mm. 
in in the container that is anger. Yeah, I I, I think I mean first of all, I've I certainly spent a lot of my life thinking about um, anger because I think we all feel that at times. I had a therapist who I'm not sure I completely agree with this, but I think she was right a lot of the time about this. Mm -hmm. Is that under she said under all anger is sadness. Mm -hmm. I think maybe under most anger. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But so that's a thing I've thought about for a long time. Yeah. But writing this poem, I think what, I, what came up for me was realizing how seductive and in a way pleasurable anger is. Um, you know, like, like your friend who is not a good friend who gets you into all sorts of trouble and then is gone and then you're stuck with a hand of shards. Um, you sort of like, anger's cool. You wanna hang out with anger. Anger's so interesting and, you know, and energetic. And there are times when it's absolutely justified, of course, mm -hmm. and useful as a tool. But a lot of times it just shows up and gets you into all kinds of sticky messes and then disappears and there you are trying to fix everything. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's what came up for me in the poem is realizing the seductive power of anger. Yeah, but you, you know, the other thing that I, I feel that you were able to capture in the poem is that and the energy of anger, mm. which is so powerful. Yeah. Um, you know, as a therapist, I work with people to say, don't waste it. Mm. You know, it's, it's, it's an energetic force that can create transformation. Mm. If we know, if we, if, you know, if the self then comes and engages you know, because the, the thing is, the self is calm, is compassionate, is clear. So when the self comes and grabs that energy of anger, oh my God, we can just create transformation. Wow. And I think that energy is captured. I don't know if, can you, can you hear the rhythm of that poem? Mm -hmm. Can you hear its own rhythm, mm -hmm. right? I, yeah, it's, it's so important to read poems out loud. Yeah. 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 Not just the reader, but um, although definitely the reader, but the poet as well to make sure that it is what you want it to be. Yeah. And that's there, the, yeah. the force. Uh, it's not definitely, um, it's not a flat voice, right? Like you cannot read it with mm -hmm. a flat voice. Hmm. I'm so try I, it and you'll see I can't do it. <laughs> you are such a wonderful reader. I, I love hearing you reflect. Yeah, no, I, I can't wait actually to use it. I can um my next um workshop is gonna be with a group of students and I can't wait to try it. Um uh, yeah. because one of the things that we do actually is to ask for different readers especially because we want to find the rhythm and the, the people do that. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you'll see it, um, how like a poem, a poem like this, I'm 100% certain that we're gonna hear the energy that I'm talking about that is, um, and the, uh, like the pics in the poem. Mm -hmm. I'll let you know. Please do. I would love to. I would love to hear how that goes. Um, okay. Can we talk about another one of your poems that I talk wanted? About as many as you want. I wanted so badly to have written it. 
um, your cashier today was self. Oh yeah. Oh my God. Such, that's what we call a found poem, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was in a grocery store. Yeah. My, my receipt said your cashier today was self. You can make that one up. Right? And of course, it normally, you get that kind of receipt every time you go to the grocery store, but it normally says the name of the person who was interacting with you and helping you get these groceries paid for and together. Um, but that day when it was self, I just thought, and then I became this whole meditation on how so many things now are like that, that we really turn to ourselves uh, and not just in a self-reliant way, but in a turning away from others kind yeah. of way yeah. um, that uh, there's so much about our society now that makes it harder to interact with other people. And I yeah. wrote that before the pandemic, you know, when, huh. you know, now, of course, there are all these additional barriers. A different, yeah. But, but you, that's been going for a long time. Yeah. Right. But one of the things, this is one of the poems also where I, I heard nostalgia for a connection and meaning, like nostalgia for connection and meaning is what I heard. And, and kind of, I was wondering, okay, is, is it telling me um, that the landscape of humanity is desolate, that the interception of technology and self is a desolate landscape what can you say I, I, think, I think you could make an argument there I, yeah you know, I, I'm thinking about you know compared to 1912 when there was the flu and nobody could see each other because huh. when you're trapped in a house there was no zoom and there was no telephone um, so the technology can of course bring us together also mm -hmm. you know so many people have um, apps that enable them to stay in touch with family all over the world or mm -hmm. uh, friends, social media. Um, but there are ways that it's dehumanizing too. I mean, first mm -hmm. of all, the self-checkout line in the grocery store mm -hmm. is the removal of a job yeah, you know, that somebody absolutely. was paid to do. Right. Um, and so that person doesn't have access to that source of income anymore. Second of all, you know, it, it's a loss of a conversation or a whole lot of conversations um, every day uh, with somebody who, you know, you, you may not see them again, or you may see them, or in fact, if it's your neighborhood, you may see them a lot mm -hmm. and then develop a kind of a relationship and that's gone. Um, but I think what most concerns me is that it's seductive too, that a lot of the time I'm, you know, why did I get that receipt? Because I went to those that checkout because it was faster and honestly like a lot of poets i'm kind of introverted and felt like some of the interactions are so awkward i don't know what to say uh and then i leave feeling like oh did i say the right thing was i stupid you know and so so i do it on purpose you know yeah. i deliberately yeah, yeah. Uh, order stuff online rather than mm. over the phone mm. you know i deliberately go to that checkout line and so on mm. um but what's the result in the long run is a, is a life that doesn't have much humanity in it. There's a whole food store near us now. I don't know if you have one of these near you where mm. it's like this, where you just go in and you scan in with your app and then you go just take whatever you want off the shelf and you put it in your bag and you go home, you scan out on your app, you just say, I'm leaving now. And it charges wow. you 
accurately for everything you took off the shelves. You don't scan them anywhere. You don't run a barcode. It just knows. And I'm telling you, it picks the right flavor of ice cream. Like you take one off the shelf, it doesn't give you the one next to it. Excuse my French, that is freaking me out. <laughs> yes. And then if you look up, what, you, what the deal is, is about every foot and a half, there is a camera hanging from a wire over your head. And I mean, it's a grid of cameras, one and a half feet by one and a half feet. Just, I don't know how many hundreds of cameras are in this store. Um, and they're just tracking your every move and you go in and out without having talked to anybody. And this Whole Foods, I mean, it used to have so many cashiers mm -hmm. working there, but I go there because it's kind of a relief. So yeah. Yeah. I think sometimes we make short-term choices right. that make sense, but that lead to something that we don't actually want. Yeah, but what fascinates me, though, again, is that the poet in you, the, that <laughs> I, like, you know, you saw it and you, you, you really, it was a found poem, you, you, you transformed that. Mm -hmm. And, and of course, um, you navigated this, this whole reality that you're describing. Now, did you know this thing about was that store there when you wrote the poem? No. No. So okay. that represents a kind of an acceleration, even. An accelerate. Well, that's the creative mind, right? That sees right. beyond. Oh, I even mean that the Whole Foods is an acceleration of what I had been seeing on this one receipt. Yeah. It's just going to be more and more that way. You know, packages delivered by drones. Yeah. And, and it's... We'll just go into a warehouse and grab a TV and walk out and our inbox will have a bill for that and my goodness um, so it, it's it's crazy out there you know yeah. it's a, well, it's well thank you for capturing that because it's important that we reflect on those things these are serious matters because where are where is humanity going i do want to say though that that's happening but then there are other modalities where people are creating communities, right? And kind of um, trying to balance um, this kind of thing. I just spent the weekend at Hobart in upstate New York, where there is the Hobart Festival of Women Writers. Mm -hmm. And it's a whole, you know, you, you, you eat everything from the land there. So there are no cameras anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just gonna say that that's also there. But David, we we have gotten to um, the top of the hour, and I want to know: is there anything that I didn't ask um, about the book that you want specific, uh, specifically about your your upcoming, you know, the the poetry book? Um, is there anything that I didn't ask that you think is important for? the audience to know about this book and where can they order? Lovely. So um, the I guess I would jump off of what you were just saying that a number of the poems that we talked about today are the, the sort of the, the broken stuff in the world. And that's mm -hmm. it. Like I say, that's crucially important to see. But then there are these poems about, you know, um, being in a synagogue um, you know, despite everything, sun finds the synagogue window stretches mm. across the floor. Mm -hmm. um, there, there are these poems about people coming together. Um, so there's that piece of it too, that 
Uh, and in fact, the second section, which has more of that connection, is even a little bit bigger um, than the broken section. Not a lot bigger, but a little bit bigger. So I, um, I'm glad you brought that up, because for me, it's such an important aspect of life and therefore mm -hmm. of this, this book. Um, that, you know, the, there are two sections in the book. One is called The Bare-Limbed Trees. Yes. The other one is called The World is a Garden. Mm -hmm. And those are both true. You know, uh -huh. those are both true. So... Uh -huh. Thank you for bringing that up. And if yeah. people did want to get a hold of it, um, you know, the book's called What's Left to Us by Evening. And it's available, um, I guess, just about anywhere. Um, mm -hmm. Any online uh, venue, I'm sure any bookstore would be able to order it. Maybe it's in some bookstore. Um, you can also just go to davidebenbach.com. Um, I have a last name that everybody struggles with, but I'm sure in the show notes, it'll be spelled out and you can see. But davidebenbach.com will get you there okay great um so easy to talk to you and and um i feel like we could just spend the day here just <laughs> talking but we must bring this to a close i thank you so so much for taking the time to um stop by and and talking to us about um your work and um, also by, you know, for sharing the poems with us. Well, thank thank you. you for having me and for fostering such a rich conversation. And I don't just mean today, but in all of your work, you know, for thank fostering you. such a rich conversation. Thank you, David. And thank you for listening to What a Word is Worth. You can access uh, different versions of today's episode. Um, at Anchor, YouTube, and other platforms. And if you are interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you find this program beneficial, leave us a review. I am with you and in love and compassion, always, always, always.